Welcome to the Jackson Hole Connection. Thank you for subscribing and downloading my first 10 episodes. I deeply appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedules to join me while I visit with worldly interesting people connected to Jackson Hole. Please go to my website, thejacksonholeconnection.com, to offer feedback, provide ideas, and even request to be on this show. When you have time, please subscribe, share, rate, and review this podcast. Today, my guest is Jason Williams. Jason is a business owner, wildlife photographer, writer, and adventurer. Jason built from the ground up a successful business, Jackson Hole Wildlife Safaris, which services over 9,000 guests annually who can explore and appreciate the rich natural resources of the greater Yellowstone area and abroad. And I am honored and thrilled to have Jason here today. But before we begin, I have a quick word from one of my sponsors. Jackson Hole Marketplace, the small market in Jackson Hole with a huge reach. Stop in for hot coffee and homemade breakfast in the morning, awesome lunches in the afternoon, and finish the day with a soft serve ice cream and a six pack of beer. Need catering for breakfast or lunch? They can do it and deliver for free. Want to know more? Visit jhmarketplace.com. Jason, thank you for coming out and visiting. Thank you for having me. Could you introduce yourself a little bit more, uh, share some greater information than maybe I didn't cover there at the introduction? Sure. Uh, yeah, I moved to Jackson in 1999 and worked as a float guide for Triangle X Ranch. And uh, I moved here to learn how to guide river trips, uh, moved on to guiding whitewater for several years, became a snowmobile guide. Um, through, through the snowmobiling, really got into photography and started shooting in the park while I was guiding in the winter and started a photography business in 2004, which led me to uh, start Jackson Hole Wildlife Safaris in 2007. So as a photographer, I wanted to be out shooting, and there, at that time there was not a place that, was, that I wanted to work at. And so uh, one of my coworkers in the winter um, asked me if I would start a business and he would work for me. So after I asked him where I wanted, where I should apply to, <laughs> for a job. So that's awesome. Yeah. So he said it was March of March of 2007 after our snowmobile season. And mm-hmm. he had been guiding here about 25 years already. And, um, it kind of set off the light bulb and we were in business at the end of April. That's awesome. And, uh, we operated the first whole first summer without a website. Uh-huh. Uh, and the, uh, the hotels that knew us as guides kept us busy. So we had one van and two of us and we now have, uh, 20 vehicles and uh, 25 employees with the company. That's spectacular. Congratulations yeah, on on that growth. Well, you and I are part of the same class. A previous guest, Tim Harlan, mentioned the year that we all arrived. We are the class of X, so you and I are oh. both of the class of 99. Oh, we are. Okay. Yes. Great. <laughs> Great. So that's fantastic. So you started this business with just one van. Were you living out of your van? I was not, but that was the backup plan. Okay. So <laughs> the backup plan, I never even considered taking out a loan of that size, which I think was about $16,000 for the van. And uh, my plan was if all else failed, I would live in the van and travel. Okay. So that was the backup plan. And you did not have to go to your backup plan. I did not. How does it feel to have grown the business from just that one van to, you said, 25 vans? Uh, 20 vehicles and 25 employees. 20 ve- that's, that's, a, that's a major responsibility there. It is. It's stressful. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like the stress? Uh, sometimes. <laughs> what are the times sometimes. that you don't like the stress? I, I mostly, I, I actually like being challenged, but the, uh, the, the stre- when the stress accumulates to the point of not being fun anymore, mm-hmm. which 
can vary from day to day. Okay. <laughs> That's, I think everybody who owns and operates a business understands that we all are faced with that same challenge. There's everyday aspects of life that some parts are fun, some parts are not fun, but we just deal with it. And you, the next day, it's another day, and you wake up and you got a big smile on your face. That's true. And and one of the one of the things that I learned with Tom, my first employee that, that started with me, was things change when somebody else's livelihood is associated with what I do. So no longer am I just a guide on the river or in the snowmobile. And if I don't show up to work, it does affect some guests, but for the most part, there's no real consequence. Um, in this case, once once you have an employee and their livelihood and their families associated with you, you feel that pressure daily. Things change all of a sudden. It's like having a family, and so now all these other families are are relying on you. So if you don't get out of bed in the morning, they they suffer. It's an honor, but it, it is a serious thing to think about when you wake up in the morning. Oh, for sure. And welcome to leadership, Jason. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> leadership is all about having responsibility, not just for yourself, but the fact that you have responsibility for the people who are in your organization. And how do you keep your employees going every day, day in, day out, and be excited and to ensure that your guests have such a remarkable experience that those guests are going to share their experience with other people and want to come visit you and, and your staff? That's a great question. I mean, motivating staff and, and uh, managing is not my strong suit. It's not my background. I'm a wildlife photographer. I'm a guide. I'm an outdoorsman. And so I've really stumbled into management. I've read a lot of books. I've, I've tried to emulate people that are uh, my heroes or people that I want to find myself being more like. And uh, for me, it's about connecting with the staff on every level. We have a really transparent organization. Everybody knows what everybody's doing. They know what I'm up to. And if I fail, I, I own that. And if I succeed, I share that. We encourage our staff to do the same. So um, we try to create a safe environment for, for those failures. We're going to stumble. We're going to have a bad day. But most of the time, we have great days, and um, we've really worked hard to hire the right people that work together, and I think everybody's having a good time. So you mentioned a little bit about you've learned a lot from books. You were thrown into being a leader because you're an adventurer, a photographer, and you've spoken to a lot of people. What is something that you can share that you've learned from a book or a mentor one of the most compelling ideas that has helped you become and be a successful business leader? Well, probably one of my biggest influences in business side of things is my stepfather. Um, he, was a long, he was a lifelong entrepreneur. He's 90 years old now, still going strong and working on all kinds of projects. And probably from a business perspective, he had, he's had a great influence. I've learned a lot from him. But from a personality perspective, one thing that I've noticed, and it's a theme throughout a lot of the books I've read with other big entrepreneurs like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or these, these big players in our economy and our world now, is that they were given as kids, they were allowed the room and the space to fail. And even if they came from modest means as Steve Jobs did, if they failed or they tried something that didn't work out or they pivoted, 
it was just great. Go do something else. Go try something else instead of being told they're a failure. And so it's a it's if you if you really look at that, there's a theme that runs throughout that. And and when I grew up, I was definitely in the same environment, which was you want to play paintball, that's great. You want to quit playing paintball, that's fine. You want to go in martial arts, that's fine. You want to stop martial arts, that's fine. You know, you lost the contest, that's fine. You won, that's fine. You know, as long as you're doing something that you're passionate about, instead of, you know, I, th I see a lot of parents um, berating their kids and telling them they're not good enough or they need to try harder or they're never going to make it. And it just, it's just like nails on a chalkboard for me because failure is a big part of it. You know, in Silicon Valley, it's fail fast and fail often. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd rather not fail personally. Yeah. Um, but I fail more than I succeed. Mm -hmm. And I just don't even, if you ask me what one of my big failures was, I'd have to really think hard because mm -hmm. I don't even think about it. Because you have so many of them. I, there's so many on yeah. a day-to-day -day basis that you're going to fail and then you just learn from it and move on. Exactly. You don't, you don't get hung up on it. My parents were like that. They were very, they were loving. They were in, encouraging, but without telling me how special I was. You know, we didn't live in a you get a trophy for showing up kind of household, <laughs> um, which is the other side of the coin. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you're not special. You know, everybody's special. I, I appreciate and value your insights there. At the liquor store, I have an OPSP, one-page strategic plan, is modeled all, out of uh, Vern Harnish's scaling up from his organization. And one of our beliefs is it's okay to fail. And everybody in the organization understands and knows it's in writing. It is, <laughs> the only thing that closer to it being in writing is us putting in stone, which I haven't not quite done yet, but it, it's there and everybody understands it's okay to fail just as long as you learn from it. Yeah, absolutely. And my, like my team, I know, they, they know that if something big happens, that's probably going to be better than little things. Mm -hmm. So little things kind of drive me crazy. <laughs> but then if something big happens, you know, the, a, a vehicle gets damaged, uh, we have some something happens that's a little more expensive. You know, I mean, it's, it's just like, well, just don't do that again. I just watched a guy accidentally scrape a brand new Suburban into a post and scrape the paint off. And uh, stay away from that post. She she looked at me like, uh oh, and I was like, oh well, yeah. I'll paint it later. Yeah, <laughs> you get your shake you know, can out. Yeah, I mean that's the worst thing that happens to us. We're in good shape. That's right. Um, I just think it's you know even with our kids, I see, um, I have two stepdaughters, and their dad has a little different philosophy than I would have, in the sense that they are not given the room. If they make a mistake, they get yelled at. And they're very they become very sensitive because of that. And for me, I just am, I ask them why. Well, why are you upset? If you okay, you dropped one of our daughters dropped a bottle of wine on the pavement, which you would appreciate having a liquor store. So I had to come <laughs> in and buy another one. And she dropped the bottle of wine, and it was like catastrophic. It's twenty bucks, twenty dollars. I mean, it's like well, we just got to pick up the glass, pick up the pieces, and get up. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not a big deal. You That's know? right. That's not and, the end of the world. That can no. be corrected. That's where I see like some entrepreneurs that can deal with catastrophic loss or, or families for that matter. And people that have had just catastrophic loss and then be able to just to pick themselves up and move forward, you know, 
it's it that's inspiring to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it should be a lesson for all of us. I think I was just telling you about the guy who's agitated because somebody was using a crosswalk and he had to slow down in his truck. His world is so small to be upset that he has to slow down because of somebody crossing the road and, and get fired up about that. I've, I've interviewed Holocaust survivors who just came to the United States after a stint in Bolivia, creating a whole life for themselves, finally got to the United States and built a whole family and a whole life after catastrophic loss. I mean, something you can't even imagine. So then to get upset, you know, I think we all going to get upset about little things, mm-hmm. but you got to remember like there's, there's bigger catastrophes out there. That's right. There are well said with uh, some, some things for us all to think and reflect about. And I'm sure wherever somebody's listening today, don't let those little things bother you. You, you can have control over it. You do have control over it. So don't let them bother you at all. Segwaying into some, some other things. Um, one thing that I think would be interesting to know is how did you find Jackson Hole of all places in the world? You move out here in, in 1999. What brought you here? So this is a, that's a great question. And in it, it goes into the failure uh, concept. Um, and I, I have to thank um, Backroads. Um, Backroads is a, a bike, luxury bike company that did not hire me. And I was in my early 20s. I found Jackson originally through my family. So just to answer your question in a, in a short paragraph, um, I've traveled here a couple times with my family as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, my first mountain I tried to climb was Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. Okay. I was 12, and I started <laughs> scrambling up the ski slopes and got about three quarters of the way up and realized that I was in over my head. <laughs> and uh, this kid from Illinois had never seen a mountain and was by myself in a thunderstorm up there and kind of broke down and then collected myself and hiked back down on my own. Um, so that was my, that was a failure. Did, I did not make the top of Rendezvous Peak. Um, it, it, at 12 years old, living in Alton, Illinois at the time, I couldn't have imagined that I would then come out here and you know, basically master that mountain, master the, the, this environment. But anyway, so I first came with my family and then in, out of college, I was an outdoor instructor and climbing guide and um, wanted to learn a new skill in that outdoor world. And so I applied for a job with Backroads, the, the California-based uh, bike tour company. And I was tw- in my early 20s, I had an associate degree. I was an EMT at the time and spoke a little Spanish. And I think I had traveled at that time to uh, Mexico and the Bahamas. That was my extensive travel history. And then applied with Backroads and sent my application out of, I think there were 60 jobs for 1,200 applicants. Mm-hmm. Out of the 1,200, there were 300 of us that got phone interviews. Out of the 300, 120 of us got, or something like that, got invited to Berkeley for a training. And I got there, um, I, I flew out, and it was a two-day training, and I re- quickly realized that I was in way over my head. My competitors were, or, you know, co- or co-applicants were, um, had master's degrees, PhDs, spoke multiple languages, had been all over the world. Like these were the people that I wanted to become. And so I knew pretty much out of the gate that there was, it was unlike, I was the youngest person there too. And so it was probably my EMT license and my, uh, some of my outdoor skills that got me in the door. I did not get the job, went back, uh, home from that experience though, and went back to school. So I went back to college to get my bachelor's, started traveling 
immediately started applying for jobs all over the West. And out of, I think I sent, uh, I had eight job offers out of like 20 something applications I sent out, uh, or resumes I sent out and got, uh, had eight job offers. I accepted three. Mm-hmm. One was in Colorado as a climbing guide. One was in Wyoming as a river guide. And one was in Alaska as a bear guide. Out of the three, the Jackson Hole job shook out the best. It was a float job with Triangle X Ranch. And that's what I want. That was a skill I wanted to learn to add to my resume. So came out, did about half a summer with Triangle X and then um, left early and went to Europe to build more travel experience, went to several countries by myself. It was the, one of the loneliest trips I've ever been on. I just went to build my resume up, then started school again, came back to Jackson, guided to Whitewater the second summer, finished my bachelor's. And in that process, got a winter job offer for here. And so that set in motion how I got stuck, as it were, in Jackson Hole. There's a side note to this. March of 2007, I was in transition with my photography. I reapplied with Backroads and immediately got a job offer because of my experience here. <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the meantime, as that was shaken out, I started Jackson Hole Wildlife Safaris. So I had my Backroads job, I had my new company, and I was trying to plot how to do both. Mm-hmm. And as Safaris just blew up and really turned into what it was going to be, I had to turn down my Backroads job, which was kind of still a disappointment. I still see the Backroads vans and I think, <laughs> man, I, I, maybe I'll do that when I retire. <laughs> you can do that when you retire, but you had the fire in your belly to say that I'm going to go after my dream yeah. or a dream that I have discovered that I have and I'm going to bring it to life. And you did it. And you're doing it successfully. I'm sure there were lots of struggles along the way, but you're, you're made it happen. That's important. Yeah. I mean, at one point I I left due to a breakup with a girlfriend, left this beautiful cabin in Wilson where I was running my business out of and uh, lived in the basement of a pawn shop for three years. You lived in the basement of the pawn shop? I did. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) My friends lived there. They're my adventure partners and, and I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad that I did it, but it was it's a, it was a trial and a tribulation. There were a lot of people that lived in the basement of that pawn shop there, that I've known. There has been. Redbeard. I lived with him. All right. Yeah. <laughs> he, he still lives in town and is a, yeah. a surveyor. He is, and he's been he's become very successful. As a matter of fact, everybody that we live with has gone on to you know do bigger and better things. Um, content, some have continued to be athletes at a very high level. Um, Redbeard is one of them. I mean, Mark's he's a great guy. We live with Brian Smith, who's an excellent mountain guide and has gone on to become a really renowned professional in his field. Of all the people that you've guided in this valley, it's it's got to be thousands, but I'm sure you have seen some just gut-splitting events that you could share, one or two that <laughs> that are just things that it's like, oh my gosh, if unless you saw it, you wouldn't believe that happened. Well, I, I, one of my points of pride mm-hmm. was my safety record for the longest time. And I've been guiding people since high school. And so I used to lead caving trips. I got into rock climbing in high school, started rigging high ropes courses, started running those, started te- I taught rappelling and climbing from everybody from inner city kids to corporate groups, um, had perfect safety record, rafting for several years, had perfect safety record, no injuries, nothing. They never flipped the boat? 
Um, I didn't flip a boat until I've only flipped one raft and that was at low water, <laughs> believe it or not, in, in, a, in Big Kahuna, which is the standard big rapid at low water. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I was shocked. I came out laughing. I couldn't believe it. Um, then I did. A, I finally had one injury on a raft trip. It was an elderly lady who broke her ankle. It was totally freak accident. Just inside the raft, didn't fall out, and it was no big deal. We treated her, and uh, but then when I, when I became a snowmobile guide, then then it, the heat got turned up on the medical training because that's just a little more dangerous as a motorized sport. Mm-hmm. People have control of their own vehicles. Yeah, there was always something going on um, uh, snowmobiling. I'm trying to think of. The craziest thing that ever happened was actually a mental health emergency um, in Yellowstone, in a blizzard. I had not had much mental health training. Um, wilderness, my wilderness first responder training just added it. And then in a recertification um, for Wilderness Medicine Institute, they had a segment on mental health. And it took me really dropping the ball pretty hard to then finally realize that I actually had a real emergency and had to evacuate the person. But it took me telling her she was crazy mm-hmm. to do that, which was totally inappropriate, totally unprofessional. Um, you probably learned about, in training not to do that. Talk about a failure. I, I said it, and right when I said it, the thought triggered in my mind what I had just learned in the recertification. And then all the signs and symptoms throughout the day came back. And immediately I realized this is for real. This isn't just a difficult client. This is the real deal. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up having to have park rangers involved and we're able to evacuate her safely. How do you get somebody out of Yellowstone quickly in the middle of winter time? You don't. Okay. <laughs> you, you don't. And, and what so, is quick in the middle of winter time in, in Yellowstone? Uh, we were only eight miles from the South Gate, and it took us probably three hours total uh, before the Rangers. The Rangers were responding to other emergencies. Wowzers. It was terrible conditions. And um, it wasn't even the other groups, just because of the situation, it wasn't appropriate to. Get her, she, she probably would not have ridden on another snowmobile. Um, and then in the time spent in the blizzard, she literally cooled down. Her acute mental illness went away. I mean, she just basically was normal. And when the rangers showed up, they were able to let her drive with their escort out. Mm-hmm. But um, it, was, that was, it was shocking. It was, I, it was a shocking experience. I don't know how to respond or how I would have reacted in, in such a situation, but... Wow. So interestingly, that's all I have to say. <laughs> interestingly, um, they added that segment to our training because what's been happening is as people have become more um, urbanized and mm-hmm. they've become disconnected with wild places, um, there's more and more acute mental health issues on wilderness trips because huh. it used to be the opposite. You'd go to summer camp or you'd go to the woods to relax and you would actually have a decrease in mental health problems it was it was therapeutic now though it's a stressor and so instead of being relaxing for many people it's a stressful situation to be out in the woods or to be in a national park and so there's actually been an increase in these acute cases that's why they added the training because they're seeing it at Knowles uh, the National Outdoor Leadership School across their spectrum too that they're having an increase in this problem in the field, and so they've added in the curriculum. Is that why they've added more cell phone towers in Yellowstone, so people feel less stressed and they know that they can get connected? That was, that's probably <laughs> part of the stress. That's part of the stress. Being connected. Being connected. Just not allowing yourself to 
be well, unconnected. I think being disconnected no. is stressful for many people. Well, I know, Jason, that... My phone's not working now, Steph, and I'm very stressed. <laughs> I can see it. Your hair is getting whiter as we speak. <laughs> uh, I, after hearing this story, I know now that if I was going into Yellowstone in the middle of the winter, I would want somebody such as yourself with your skill set to be my guide. Because that is so important to know that not just you know how to get me from point A to B, but you know how to take care of the whole group of people. And that's a big dynamic. And you never know what will happen out there. Guides are risk managers. You know, that's what they do daily. Every decision you make isn't just for yourself. It's also for this group of people. And so even just little things, how, how fast are we going to slow down? You see a bison on the side of the road. You have 10 snowmobiles behind you you better not slam on your brakes mm -hmm. or you're going to have a catastrophic <laughs> pileup. So you have to decelerate slowly, mm -hmm. you know, and get everybody on board and warn everybody. Same with even just the wildlife tours that we do. You know, the most dangerous things we do on a daily basis is drive. So most people just take that for granted. And then they're worried about terrorists or they're worried about grizzly bears or whatever the fear is that you have, sharks, you know, in the ocean the most dangerous thing ever we do on a daily basis is drive. So as the drivers on the wildlife tour, that's really where the guides know they have to pay attention the most. Second is getting in and out of the car. Mm -hmm. That's where you're going to fall and get hurt. Okay. So it's not that sexy. You know, the grizzly bears and the bison are the, are the least of our worries in the field. It's tripping on pavement, getting hit by other cars. You know, we're managing people for those kind of accidents. Same with snowmobiling. Snowmobiling is the literally driving out of the parking lot is where most of the accidents would happen because people would not quite be familiar with the machine mm -hmm. and then crash into something. That was the biggest single point snowmobiling that you really were concerned about is just that initial throttle, get a, get a feel for the machine. And then typically we're, you're pretty good. That's, that's, I'd, it's hard to imagine, but I'm sure you've seen it all. Well, but I mean, yeah. literally that you might be on a hillside with one tree, mm -hmm. like one tree on a huge area and you say everybody just notice there's a tree right there mm -hmm. and i've literally seen somebody just drive just leave where we were just sitting and drive right into the tree <laughs> <laughs> i mean you couldn't even i mean you'd have to try to do it and just crash square into it you know? I, I just told you there's a tree right there and it's a big one and it's a big one yeah it's not hidden <laughs> Don't hit the tree. That's too funny. I mean, I'm not making that up. I, I believe it. I watched a guy leave my side and drive right up the hill and hit the tree with one <laughs> shot. Didn't make a single turn. He must be a good basketball player or a good yeah, hunter. I, he must understood what I said. I didn't say hit the tree. I said don't hit the tree. <laughs> That's too much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. We're going to take a little break and a word from our sponsors and be right back with Jason. Is it okay to pair beer with Beef Wellington? Does Merlot go with Red Bull? Not sure how to make the perfect bourbon and Coke? Well, the team at the liquor store of Jackson Hole can answer all of these questions plus more. Stop in at 115 Buffalo Way, Jackson, Wyoming, or visit us at tlsofjh.com to experience service that will knock your socks off. The liquor store has been serving the Jackson Hole Valley for over 35 years. So we're back from our commercial. Welcome back, Jason. Thank you for sticking around for the second half of this podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks, Stephanie. It's a comfortable chair. <laughs> you big liar. Uh, these chairs are not comfortable. Uh, <laughs> you've shared some interesting stories with us so far. And being a guide and having so many people who are out on the road, 
I'm sure you have seen, heard some very remarkable things out there in, in nature that if you were not seeing that experience, whatever was taking place at that time, it's almost as though that it would be unreal. Can you share one of those stories with us today? Uh, sure, I'd love to. Like you said, we're out in the field every day. I mean, whether it's the river, snowmobiling, wildlife tours, wildlife doing wildlife photography, the, m- the more time you spend out, the more time you, um, you spend time in the field and you see things, and then you got to decide, do I get involved? Do I not get involved? Do I say something? You know, whether that's the general public, certainly if it's with our clients, it's our obligation to take care of them and protect park resources and keep everybody safe. Um, but then when it comes to us on the outside, um, we're constantly seeing things. We've had viral videos go viral of our guides um, yelling at people to get back away from animals and the animal charges them or something happens. I've, we've seen, I mean, it, it happens on a daily basis. Um, one time I did see a guy, I was guiding my group. This gentleman was not part of my group, and I don't believe that he spoke English, but he crawled up to a grizzly bear who was grazing on the side of the road. And when I arrived, he was maybe five feet away <laughs> with an iPad facing the bear. And it was so close that I felt that I, it wasn't even appropriate to say anything just so that we did not agitate the bear Mm -hmm. because the bear had allowed it to happen and I was afraid that any other influence could be catastrophic and so we just stayed calm and then motioned quietly to get the guy back Mm -hmm. I mean it was a grizzly bear um, so don't do that I think whether it's a grizzly bear or a black bear don't don't do that don't approach (laughs) wildlife Um, it's probably the biggest mistake people make here. Mm-hmm. You know, I, we've seen, well, there was recently a video where the, the gentleman walked up and pet the bison who was laying down at Old Faithful. Um, that's a bad idea. Uh, that Don't do that. <laughs> They're not little puppy dogs. You know, don't pet the bison. <laughs> they weigh a ton. They weigh Literally a ton. a ton. One ton. When they get on the scale, it says a ton. Yeah, they're huge. Yes. <laughs> huge animals. Yes. Um, with the wildlife interactions, I mean, over the years, one thing I have learned is that wildlife and animals are incredibly smart, incredibly intelligent, and they make decisions just like we make decisions on a daily basis. And it's based on their their history, their personality. Did they wake up grumpy today? Um, animals, uh, other animals other than us have feelings, have personalities, have life histories. They have incredible memories. They cover hundreds of square miles. They know exactly where they're at. You know, we guide polar bear trips in the fall and those polar bears roam over hundreds of square miles of largely uh, flat terrain that does not have very significant land, any significant landmarks. Um, the sea ice moves and flows and there's ocean currents and yet somehow they remember exactly where they're at and can move through that environment and end up precisely back in the same place year after year. I would get lost. I, I wouldn't be yeah. able to do that. But you do polar bear tours every year. Where where yep. is that that you do polar bear tours? We take small group of small groups of photographers up to Churchill, Manitoba, uh-huh. and we stay at a research facility up there. And we're that particular trip is focused on photographing the bears, scenery, and other Arctic wildlife: snowy owls, Arctic fox, red fox, uh, a lot of birds. Some what time birds. of year do you do that? That's in the fall. So there's a big polar bear migration. And uh, the bears move along the Hudson Bay, and uh, about a th- 700 to 1,000 bears, depending on who you ask, moves through that area in October and November. 
Whether it's 700 or 1,000, that's a lot of bears. It's a lot of bears. <laughs> and, in, and, in, and in the history of that town, which extends back to the early 1700s, there's only been two fatalities from polar bears. And both were late night surprise encounters with people that were drunk on the streets. You know, it's a pretty good safety record. So don't be drunk on the street in don't. Manitoba, Churchill, yeah. and so you don't run into a polar bear and get eaten. Yeah, don't, and they don't even eat you. They just, it's just, they, they've never eaten a person in mm-hmm. Churchill. They just had an attack, attack. a mauling. Um, one guy actually had crawled out of a building that had burned down to recover some meat in the basement. Mm-hmm. And he crawled out of the place with meat in his pockets. And he encountered oh, a bear in the basement who was also <laughs> going for the meat. <laughs> and the bear ate the meat and did not eat him, but it did kill him. Um, that was, I mean, that's you can't make that stuff up. No, you can't. That's and, uh, a sad way to die, but it is funny. But, but what we've learned being in the field for so long, I mean, there's always risk, you know, going back to that theme. I mean, there's risk of driving, there's risk of tripping, getting out of the car. There is risk that there's a bad bear. You know, there are bears or any other animal for that matter that might just feel they've had a bad day. So how do you give your clients the confidence to understand, even though there is risk, these are wild animals, W-I-L-D, look it up in the dictionary, it has a certain meaning, these animals are not tame, to give your clients a certain amount of confidence to where they feel comfortable being with you and being in these environments that they are going to get the full experience, the best experience possible? Well, I'd say for the vast majority of guests, they're overconfident. Often, uh, people that live in urban environments are uh, watching National Geographic. They're watching Planet Earth. They're watching these videos where videographers have spent thousands and thousands of hours in the field with their subjects getting this great footage. And and, and then people like Steve Irwin or the, or the, the um, wildlife uh, TV personalities who are handling animals or getting close to animals um, gives the false impression that that is a reasonable thing to do. And so a lot of times people are actually getting close because they've seen it on TV. Um, so most of the time that's the case. Now I've had one, one case comes to mind that is funny and it's the opposite, which is I had guests a few years back. I took them out. They wanted to see all the normal animals that we see on a day-to-day basis and I had them outside the car and there was a pronghorn. Pronghorn are the second fastest land mammals in the world. They're a prey animal. They do not attack people. Um, If you get attacked by a pronghorn you're doing something really wrong and this animal was you know 100 yards out so we had a spotting scope and I'm telling them about the pronghorn and their migrations and how fast they run and the interesting facts and I look around me and the guests are back in the suburban like ready to go. I figured they just weren't interested in what I was saying. Pack up my spotting scope, get back in. They seemed a little bit, uh, I guess, off was mm-hmm. the best way to describe it. They seemed a little bit uh, excited. And what I found out, and I thought they were kidding at first, was that they thought the pronghorn was going to attack them. After I told them it ran 70 miles an hour, they jumped back in the car and said, let's go on to something else. Missing the cue, thinking they were kind of kidding around, we, I drove them into a herd of bison bison are all around the suburban roll the windows down the bison are grunting it was august when during their rut they're making all kinds of noise and i started telling them about the life history of bison and the ecology of the area with the bison on the landscape and i look back in the mirror and they're huddled together in the middle of the car hugging each other in absolute sheer terror of the bison that are all around us 
And, um, you know, I pointed out the car is in perfect condition. Like if the bison were attacked us regularly, we'd have dents and things on the car. It just doesn't happen very often. And they, uh, they were pretty freaked out, it turns out. So I even got out of the car to demonstrate, you know, we were still a safe distance and the bison were 25 yards even away from the car. So I was able to step out next to the car and just say, look, they're not going to attack us. It's fine. They're, you know, they're just doing their thing. They're grazing. And the guests were basically, they had me drive them straight back to the hotel and then promptly complained that I put their family's life in danger because we were, we saw wildlife okay. on a wildlife safari. <laughs> All right. True story. <laughs> uh, everybody has interprets experiences differently. So for people that are, are listening, what are some experiences or things that they could expect to see if they were to go out on a tour with, with your company, Jackson Hole Wildlife Safaris? It's very seasonal. So every season is different, and, mm -hmm. and that's what makes this place so great for what we do. Um, winter time, we have huge amounts of animals down in the valley floor. The snow in the mountains pushes everything down, you know, right next to town. I mean, literally right out of town, we'll have tons of trumpeter swans that come here in the winter. Uh, we have a lot of other waterfowl. We have thousands of elk. We have wolf packs, coyotes, bald eagles, golden eagles. Everything is right there. I mean, being a wildlife guide in the winter is like shooting fish in a barrel. Mm -hmm. It's it's easy. Huh. Okay. Um, it's easier to spot things on the snow. And everything comes down to where we live because we live in the valley floor because there's less snow and it's milder. Um, springtime, you have a variety of things happening. Flowers, snow's melting, the animals are moving off their winter range. Um, some animals are um, giving birth. You know, you have elk calves dropping, bison calves, new deer. And so there's all this going on. It's very beautiful. Plus you have predators then that are taking advantage of those animals. And there's just a ton of action. Um, spring is probably my single favorite, uh, followed by fall where you get into some mating behavior with certain animals, migrations happening, fall colors. And then of course, middle of summer is the busiest and is the time when the weather's the most stable. So that's why a lot of people come here in the summertime um, during family vacation. The weather's good. Kids are out of school, mm -hmm. um, but it's busy. And so, but there's things, I mean, it's great wildlife viewing in the summertime, different yeah. things happening. August is the bison rut, which is definitely uh, interesting uh, to watch the bison get really active and chasing each other and rolling around and headbutting and do not run around with the bison while they're in rut. Don't run around with the bison. I'm more <laughs> nervous about bison in rut than I am any other animal here. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's, but on a typical day, we do half day trips all the way to five day itineraries. Mm -hmm. And uh, we spend a lot of time teaching people about the area, about the ecology, geology, natural history, and also then teaching people about the wildlife, where to find them, what are they doing. You know, part of what we do is not only do we show people the animals on the trip, but we also teach people where to see things. And so one, one comment for people that don't realize that it's funny to hear, they'll say, well, we saw more stuff on our own after the trip. Well, exactly. Because that's what we do. We teach you where to look so you can go back out. So there's a lot of value in it from that perspective, take the trip early in your vacation and use the information that we teach you. And then we also try to really promote the parks and promote the mission of the parks, promote, the rules of the parks teach people how to how to enjoy the park without impacting the resource. Mm -hmm. So there's a there's a definite leave no trace theme, wildlife safety theme, how to um, move around in bear country safely, 
a lot of people don't go hiking here because they're afraid of the bears, especially in Yellowstone. And, you know, really it's an irrational fear as long as you pay attention, carry bear spray, hiking groups, learn about the rules of the park, you know, be prepared, basically. Mm -hmm. Most people drive through the park for that mm -hmm. reason. That's, that's awesome. Thank you. How can people connect with you if they want to be able to experience some of what you just mentioned? Our best email for the Jackson Wildlife Safaris is, is jacksonholesafaris at gmail.com. And uh, that's a great way to reach out to me and our reservation staff to get more information. Okay. Thank you. Jason, it's been an honor having you here today. Thanks, and, Stephen. Uh, it's a great serving with you in our community and seeing you and your wife out and about and being great leaders and stewards of not just the community here, but of our natural resources, which are so important to uh, what we are and who Jackson Hole is. And, and you certainly live that spirit. And I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Have a good day. You too. Thank you everyone for tuning in today to the Jackson Hole Connection. I hope you have enjoyed listening and can take away a little nugget about life. I am always looking for fun guests who have a connection to Jackson Hole. If you would like to be a guest or know of someone worthy, please send me an email to connect at thejacksonholeconnection.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review the Jackson Hole Connection on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, five stars, of course. I only take five stars. The Jackson Hole Connection, sharing caring stories of worldly, wild folks with a desire to share the fun side of life. You tag it, someone will bag it. Y'all come back again, you hear?